This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Mishy Harmon. Mishy is the co-founder, the host, and the executive producer of Israel Story, a remarkable media property chronicling the story of Israelis. I especially recommend episode number 54, which features Ellie Beer of United Hatzawa. Mishy is a veteran of the IDF, a Jerusalemite, and a PhD from Hebrew University, where he wrote a biography of a Protestant missionary in Ethiopia and the Levant. Mishy, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thanks so much, Mark. It's so lovely to be here. And I am so excited to discuss your passage with you because it is one of the great passages of the Bible, which is Noah's Ark. Right, which we just read last week uh, in synagogue. We did. So tell us about Noah's Ark and why it's significant to you. Sure. So first of all, I think that, um, you know, as someone who lives in the world of stories and storytelling, it was clear to me that I was going to, once I was asked to choose a uh, passage, that I was going to choose a story. And I think that almost universally, for those who are familiar with the Bible, the stories of Genesis kind of stand out as these wonderful myths and are sort of associated perhaps in some way with your childhood memories, because the stories of Genesis are often, at least they were for me, something that I learned at a very young age. And uh, I I sort of grew up with them in a way that, you know, my mom used to read me Greek myths and also also the stories of Genesis. And and there's something so, so particularly beautiful and universal about the flood story, because of course, you and, and many listeners will know it's it's really a shared myth, and uh, there's parallels and and equivalent stories, uh, myths of flood stories in in other traditions, both you know almost identical ones in Mesopotamian uh, epics like uh, Gilgamesh, and uh, but also you know in uh, Norse mythology and Chinese mythology and Greek mythology and Hinduism and you know Mesoamerican mythology. So there's something sort of very fundamental, I think, and very universal about this story. But that actually wasn't the reason that I selected it. The reason was we just released an episode two days ago on our podcast in which we told the story of an Israeli artist who was asked by NASA to create the first work of art that would be 3D printed in space, in the International Space Station. So as part of working on that episode, I read a lot about the 1977 Voyager and the gold, uh, the golden records, uh, which maybe you remember. I don't know if, if, if you remember as a little kid. Uh, a little before my time, but no. Yeah. So, so, I mean, as everyone knows, the idea, NASA approached uh, a group that was led by Carl Sagan to sort of capture the essence of humanity and of our planet and put it on these uh, records, these uh, gilded plate records that were uh, attached to these probes, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, and sent out into outer space and, uh, and the idea was that uh, who knows, perhaps one day um, they will be encountered by some extraterrestrial civilization that will learn something about us and about what our existence here was like. And they included images and sounds and pictures and uh, 
and messages. And uh, maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. But so I've been I've been really thinking about that in the and Voyager and the Golden Records a lot lately. And in many ways, you know, the Ark is a Voyager, and the Ark Noah's Ark really is an answer or an opportunity to to ask many of the questions that Carl Sagan and his and his collaborators had to ask like what do you save and what's the essence of our existence and what are the things that really capture our life and our worlds and what we're all about and how we how we preserve that and pass that along to other future generations one of the many interesting questions that's aroused by this story is why does god pick noah because it says in the text with some kind of really extraordinary strategic ambiguity that he was a righteous man in his generation, leading to millennia of debates about whether he was righteous objectively and for all times, or whether he was only righteous compared to others in his generation. And my friend Rabbi David Wolpe gave a sermon on this on Friday night, and I made a spectacular point that he said really just came to him for the first time. This is one of the great things about the Torah. You can be a great rabbi in your 60s, and have a new insight from the Torah come to you, which happened to David last week. And he said, God picked Noah because Noah was handy. Someone had to build an ark, which is a very difficult task. Surely as difficult as it sounds, the Bible is a very realistic document intended to guide us in our day. So building an ark is presumably as intimidating or more to those in Noah's generation as it is to ours. And Noah did it for better or worse by himself. So God picks Noah because Noah's handy, teaching us, that we have to appreciate what the psychologist termed in the 20th century, multiple intelligences. God appreciated multiple intelligences. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I, I never thought of that. So I, I, in preparation for this talk, I talked to uh, a very good friend of mine, uh, Idan Dershowitz, who is a uh, professor of biblical studies at Potsdam University. And he was telling me all about the sort of sources of Noah's story. So not only the connection to the Mesopotamian flood cycles, but also sort of how Noah's story is made up of uh, two very clearly different sources um, and the discrepancies between them, you know, the Jawist sources and the priestly sources. And you can see these discrepancies in like the length of the flood and the number of the animals. Is it two or is it, you know, seven of each animal? A cool little tidbit is that the priestly source, which is the one that has Noah bringing seven of each clean or like, you know, kosher animal onto the ark with him needs to have the number seven because at the very end of, of the version of that story, Noah sacrifices one of each of the clean animals. So if he had just taken, you know, a pair, then ended up sacrificing one of them uh, as soon as the flood was over, it would sort of negate the entire uh, project of preserving those species. But I think that one interesting thing about what you were saying about why God selects Noah is that in some way, it's sort of a reversal of a collective punishment. So God is is very angry at, uh, at everyone, and uh, he's angry at the human beings, he's angry at the kol basar, you know, and any living uh, creature, and decides to restart and wipe them out. And then it says, well, Noah was, was this, you know, righteous man in, in his generation. And as you said, that leads to all kinds of speculations. What does in his generation mean? And so on and so forth. But really, there's you can think about that the only reason that God's not restarting everything and wiping everyone out is because Noah is is righteous. So Noah doesn't deserve to die. And as a result of Noah not deserving to die, uh, neither does his wife or his uh, three boys or their wives or, you know, these couples of animals. 
And, you know, we don't hear anything about whether they're righteous or not righteous. So really, it's, it's kind of a collective reward, really. They and we, as an extension, are reaping the benefits of Noah being righteous, because that is essentially what allows this continuity of, uh, of creatures and continuity of, of the world. Right. But his righteousness, it seems to me, must have been limited, because one would expect of Noah, even if Noah were just a decent guy, let alone a great Sodic. But just what would a decent guy say if God said, I'm going to destroy the whole world because everyone's evil? A decent guy would say, all right, God, I get it. People around here are terrible. You're right. But that three-year-old girl, her, her, you're going to destroy her. She evil God. Come on. Can let me bring her onto the ark. But Noah makes no argument when God tells Noah exactly what you said. Uh, I'm going to destroy the world because everyone's evil. Noah effectively says, okay, how many cubits do you want? You know, there's no moral argument. There's no discussion from Noah. And we know that God loves an argument. God loves a discussion because Noah's effective successor, Abraham, brings it to God and God loves it. Absolutely. So Noah's not Abraham in Sdom v'Amorah, and Noah's not Moses when he comes down the mountain and uh, sees the people creating the golden calf. But really interestingly, and I, I just noticed this uh, earlier today when I was rereading the, the, the story, Noah doesn't speak at all. Noah doesn't speak in the entire story, which is really quite, quite amazing. And you're right. I mean, uh, there is this progression, I think, from Adam, who basically lies to God when God confronts Adam about uh, about uh, eating from the tree of uh, life, or is it tree of knowledge? Well, he, he ate from the tree of knowledge. Yeah, the eating from the tree of knowledge, right. And to Noah, who doesn't put up any argument at all, to Abraham, who doesn't put up any argument really with the Akedah, with uh, the binding of Isaac, but then does put up a massive argument with Sdom uh, v'Amorah, but really is, in that case, I think, arguing for the righteous peoples. He says, you know, well, are you going to kill everyone, even if there are, you know, 50 or 10 or whatever uh, righteous people? To Moses, who later on, when when he comes down and he sees, you know, the entire people having uh, transgressed and uh built the golden calf, he's now advocating for the sinners, right? God wants to erase them. Yeah, the people who, who lost their, uh, their faith and more importantly, their way. 41 days, Moses is gone. And then it, it's barely a month and they lose their way. And Moses asks to forgive. That's such a terrific point you made about how Noah never says anything. And I never thought of that, but it's exactly right. And it's so instructive because one of the many great and abiding and permanent lessons of the Torah is that we create our worlds through words. So how does God create the world? I don't know. If you're God, how do you create the world? Maybe you snap your fingers, you know, maybe you wave your hands. God says, and he said nine times. And he said, God didn't have to say anything. Who even knew God could speak? But the point is what's trying to teach us is that if God creates the world with words nine times, and God said, then we create our world with words. And God speaks to Noah here in 8.15, Genesis 8.15, but Noah doesn't say anything back. So it's like God wants a conversation, but Noah is not engaging. And when you don't engage in conversation, you can't create a world. And God wants Noah to recreate the world when the flood concludes. Noah instead takes that incredible opportunity and gets completely drunk and fails in that task. And one of the many lessons and learnings from that might be just as you said, that if you can't articulate your thoughts, your concerns, your frustrations, your moral ambitions through words, you can't create, you can't recreate. God gave us the gift of creation and of recreation, but that gift is in words and Noah never uses them. In fact, it twice says that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. It also says um, Noah walked with God, which sounds great. Who wouldn't want to walk with God? Until later, it says, and Abraham walked ahead of God. 
Okay. So then you say, now I get it. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to walk ahead of God. But yeah, God says, do this. Noah's walking with him. So Noah does it. But that's not what God wants. God wants us to walk ahead of him. God has great plans and great ambitions and great faith in us. He wants us to walk ahead of him. And in some cases to bring him along. And that we see that throughout the Bible as well. So do you think that in the story, sort of God says, I'm going to wipe out everything I've created thus far. I'm going to press restart. And then he's waiting for Noah to, to sort of push back and then nothing happens. Definitely. I mean, I think that you put, you put it perfectly. Exactly. God's waiting. Nothing happens. And it's so interesting is, is no, no righteous in this generation are objectively righteous. It's so interesting seeing how interpreters often interpret through the lens of their own experience. And Rach Lakish is the rogue of the, the Bible before he really came to his Jewish faith. He was actually a gladiator and a killer. And he remained a tough guy. One of the great stories of Rach Lakish is there was once a great rabbi who was kidnapped. And this is after Rach Lakish had, had come into the yeshiva. And all the other rabbis are bemoaning the fate of their colleague who they assume is going to die. And Rach Lakish says, no. He says, I'm going to get him. And either I die or they die. So, you know, he, he, he never lost his toughness, even though even when he found his Judaism. And he said, it is so hard to be a good person in a bad culture. So his interpretation of Noah is that Noah was a righteous man because he was decent in a bad culture, because that's really hard. Rachel Lakish knew how hard it is to be a good guy in a bad culture because he came from gladiators. So this debate's an eternal debate. So I think combining your interpretation with Rachel Lakish's, we come to the, that, that God said, he's okay. This is the best we can do in this generation. I would love for him to argue with me. I would love for him to make the case for the three-year-old girl, but Noah can't do it. But he's not a terrible guy. He's just, I mean, he never inspires anybody. It takes 120 years to build an ark. It takes a long time to build an ark. And then David's point is uh, Noah's handy, so Noah builds the ark. It took a long time seeing this very talented craftsman build the ark. Plenty of people presumably would have come to Noah and say, hey, what are you working on? What are you doing? He doesn't inspire anybody. I mean, he presumably said, oh, I'm just building an ark because the flood's coming in. But, you know, he doesn't inspire anybody. And we know that because he comes on the ark with the same people that God had instructed him to do so. Like, there's nobody who said, well, I'm going to repent and I'm going to come with you. And so, yes, I think you're absolutely right. God's waiting for an argument which never comes. Why do you think that God even um, does all this? Why doesn't he just wipe out everyone and start again? I mean, why, why does he bother to preserve Noah and preserve these animals? I mean, he could just recreate it all. That's a great point. I mean, it does say in 6.9, Noah was a righteous man. What's the Hebrew there? It says perfect here, but that's not the right. That would be the right Hebrew. Is it wholesome? In his generations, Noah walked with God. Yeah. So Tamin, would you interpret that as, or translate as wholesome or pure, or how would you interpret Tamin in this context? Yeah, innocent. So Noah was righteous, wholesome, innocent in his generation. So I think God says, you know, I actually don't want to destroy him. Perhaps he also wanted continuity from Adam, because if you destroy the whole world, then there's no point in starting the Torah with Genesis 1, because then Adam's completely irrelevant. There's no connection between Adam and us. What do we have to learn from Adam if we start it all again? Like now we know that Adam's our ancestor and a little bit of Adam's in all of us and everyone else that came between Adam and Noah. But if you just start over completely and obliterate Noah too, you have no continuity unless you have no story. What I love about, about this, to go back to the sort of Voyager analogy here, is that at the end you have this little, this little sort of one-line poem at the end of the story. So, uh, you know, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And God says again and again how he sort of uh, creates this covenant to say that he'll never again destroy humanity and uh, with the waters of a flood and, you know, never again will his creation be destroyed. And Sagan and his, and his friends were trying to come up with the sort of tone of the message of this, uh, of the golden record 
that was sent up with Voyager. Also, I mean, they were representing our entire existence. And part of our existence is, you know, wars and hunger and bombs and famine and genocides and occupations. But but rather, they chose this kind of hopeful message. And Kurt Waldheim, who was the Secretary General of the UN, recorded this message and said, you know, we step out of our solar system into the universe seeking only peace and friendship to teach if we're called upon and to be taught if we're fortunate. And Jimmy Carter, uh, who was then the president, said, uh, this is a present from a small, distant world, a token of our sounds, our science, our images, our music, our thoughts, and our feelings. We're attempting to survive our time so we may live into yours. And there's something sort of, I think, similarly beautiful about that kind of hopefulness that comes out of this mass destruction. And of course, you know, on, on, on the Voyager, they recorded greetings in 59 different languages. And in fact, the very next story that we encounter is the Tower of Babel. The great story of diversity, properly understood. God loves diversity, properly understood. Because it's exactly, it says 11.1, the whole earth was of one language and common purpose. In other words, everyone thought the same way. And God hates it. God wants people thinking different ways and approaching him in different, from different vantage points and with different paths. And that's what happens at the end of that great nine-line story, the Tower of Babel. So that's right. So if you were to send a message to aliens in accordance with the way the world is now and in accordance with God's dream of the Tower of Babel, we'd have to send it in several dozen languages. Right. So I, I just, I don't know if you saw this, but I just finished watching um, David Attenborough's witness statement, you know, the life on our planet on Netflix. Did you see that? No. So first of all, you should, I hi- highly recommend it. You know, Noah was 600. He's only 94, but it, I think is very um, meaningful to think of that in the context of, of Noah's Ark. Like what would we put in Noah's Ark today? You know, in a moment in which we, a single species on this planet have the power to threaten or even bring to an end this entire, you know, blue marble that we live on? And uh, what would we put in our Noah's planet today? And that's not such a theoretical, uh, you know, question when we live in an age of SpaceX and going to Mars and uh, colonizing other planets. What does it actually mean to be part of this world? And what what are the important things that we would absolutely say, like, these are the couples of uh, animals that we want to put on our Noah's Ark today? You know, do we put computers? Do we put animals? Do we put, uh, who knows, right? Right. Well, the, the question is, if we were to recreate the world, what would be the stuff of its recreation? And it does say, in the passage you read, it's clear that God said he won't destroy the world again, but he doesn't say you won't. It's an ominous passage, particularly for the atomic age. The only promise is God won't destroy the world again. But will you, will we, mankind? We'll see. Right. And actually, sort of interestingly, at the very end of the story, God subjugates all the animals to Noah and his descendants. And he says that, uh, you know, from now on, we'll reign upon them and we can do whatever we want with the stipulation that we can't, you know, eat these animals while their blood is still pumping within them. And, you know, in this sort of human-centric world in which we find ourselves today, uh, we have indeed subjugated the entire planet to our purposes. And uh, that is leading us in in very scary and and disastrous directions. Then God does give us the power or the ability or the the license to eat animals here. But clearly, it's a concession to man's weakness. Vegetarianism is clearly the ideal. And meat eating is clearly in the text a concession to man's weakness. You can definitely eat it. There's no prohibition against meat eating at all. But it's a concession. Well, Mishy, thank you for such a fascinating conversation about this uh, awesome and eternal passage, which continues to yield lessons every time anyone studies it. Now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, sacred text of the uh, Bible, to uh, another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells a story. He said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. 
And he said this man had um, saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Michigan, all of your years, is really one of the pioneers in both podcasting and modern Israeli storytelling. What are two things that you've learned about humankind? So I've had the absolute fortune to, over the last decade, interview you know thousands of people here in Israel. And I often think of my microphone kind of as a magic wand that allows me to access, to get entry, you know, into the houses. What a great way to look at it. It's like a magic wand. Yeah, I mean, it gains me access and entry into the homes and the living rooms and kitchens of Israelis of all kinds and colors and, and shapes. And, and I think that um, the two things that I've learned sort of more fundamentally than anything else are perhaps a little bit of, of a contradiction, but they are, one, how different we all are from each other. And, you know, I, I live in Jerusalem and I, I run every day and you can't run far enough in Jerusalem without sort of entering and exiting neighborhoods of people living very, very different lives. What a great point. It's actually physically impossible, right? Even if you tried, you couldn't do it. Right. And and that's just within my city. But, you know, Israel's a tiny place, but life in a kibbutz in Emek Israel is very different than life in Tel Aviv, which is very different from life in Bnei Brak, which is very different from life as a Palestinian in Ramallah, which is very different from life as a Bedouin uh, teenage girl in an unrecognized you know, Bedouin village in, in, in the South. So I would say number one is I've learned how different we all are, really fundamentally, and how difficult it is for us to exit our own way of thinking and put ourselves in the shoes of someone else who just has a different outlook on life and different set of experiences. And I would say the second thing I learned is how similar we all are. And um, how, with all of our differences, the things that really make us who we are at the very end are are much the same. They're you know feelings of love and feelings of jealousy and feelings of uh, closeness and anger. And how it doesn't matter if you're a Haredi or a Palestinian or an Eritrean refugee or or whatever it is, you know, we're we're motivated by many of the same feelings. So we're talking now uh, less than a week before the elections in, in America. And it's sort of like this uh, tired cliche to say, like, you know, there's no blue states, there's no red states, there's a, you know, we're all the same. And what unites us is so much different than what divides us. And I think what I've learned more than anything is that there's a lot that divides us, but there's a lot that that unites us. Yeah, what a great point. It's like everything else is complicated. So let's take an imaginary person, or let's take not imaginary person, you're thinking of someone specifically, exactly your age who lives maybe a mile and a half from you in Mer Sharim. You've probably been in that person's home. Sure. What do you have in common with him and what do you have differently from him? And, And just describe Mer Sharim in case any listener is not familiar with it. Or perhaps the description of Mer Sharim is, I was in Mer Sharim, I don't remember how long ago. And there was a sign up saying, if you have an iPhone, you must leave immediately. <laughs> yeah, there are big signs that say, you know, please don't come through our neighborhood with uh, shorts or with sleeveless shirts and stuff like that. Actually, uh, as it happens, last night I ran through <laughs> through Masharim or uh, through the outskirts of Masharim. And I saw many, many uh, people who are, you know, my age and living very different lives. I'm 37. So presumably the average 37-year-old man living in Masharim is a father of many children, is probably a yeshiva student. 
probably living in relative poverty, you know, with a great sense of order and purpose. And, you know, it's hard to tell what's in people's heart, but perhaps with sort of less of a the angst of sort of our daily self-questioning. And then I ran not not that far from there and uh, into an Arab neighborhood and saw a lot of people my age too. And, you know, their, the reality of their lives is extremely different. But I would say at the end of the day, you know, if I had to guess what this hypothetical person in Mashaarim or in uh, my own neighborhood here in Abutor or would have in common with me is that uh, well, currently there's a lot in common since we're all facing something which seems to be much greater than than any of us and any of these uh, demographic divides, which is that we're concerned about you know our health and our our safety, and I'm sure that uh, each one of these hypothetical people are thinking about their parents who are you know susceptible to corona and uh, how to watch out and thinking about you know what it means to live in a world where you can't interact uh, as much as you usually do or, you know, where your kids can't go to school. And in non-corona times, I would say that what unites us is that we're probably all thinking about, you know, what it is that we do that makes a difference, that uh, makes us feel as if we have a sense of living a purposeful and, and, and good life of, you know, heartache and of uh, pleasure and of um, being proud of our friends and our family members and our children and our spouses, of being disappointed by people. We're all, at the end of the day, we really are all pretty similar in our unique ways. Absolutely. And I, I think kind of one of the proofs that what you're saying is so right and so profound and that people are simultaneously both very different and very similar is that everyone in seemingly every culture loves and appreciates this Bible which was written God knows how many thousands of years ago, but many thousands of years ago, everyone loves and appreciates this Bible. Why? Because it speaks to all of us in basically every important way, whether it's a matter of emotions, whether it's a matter of challenges, whether it's a matter of opportunities, whether it's a matter of purpose and a thousand other things, the Bible speaks to us. And yet we're amazed by that. So the fact that it speaks to us really shows our similarity. And the fact that we're amazed by it shows that we recognize that we're so different, both from each other and from people who came in the past. I think that's exactly right. And, and the flood story is a great example of that because the flood story is one of these stories that really does exist in almost every culture has a pretty similar flood story. In some cases, they're like starkingly similar. You know, one of the nice things about podcasting, you know, as this is a podcast and uh, I, I myself am a podcaster, one of the nice things about that is that I think that that really brings that point that you just said home because so much of our of the way we process the world is visual. What I mean by that is to say that, you know, I, as I said, I live in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about 900,000 uh, residents. About a third of them are ultra-Orthodox Jews. About a third of them are Arabs. And even though everyone lives in sort of their own neighborhoods and perhaps doesn't have that much daily activity, you see each other all the time in the market, in the hospital, in the, you know, on the bus, whatever. And I think what happens instinctively to, to everyone is that you see somebody and you immediately kind of take in what he or she are wearing or what they have or don't have on their head or what color skin they have. And you put them in a box and you you think you know a lot about them. You say like, oh, that guy's an ultra-Orthodox Jew. Okay, so you know I know what that means in terms of how many kids he or she has, what their dinner table looks like, what they did or didn't do in the army, what parties they vote for, what they think about the gay pride parade in, in Jerusalem and so on and so forth. And what I've learned uh, working on Israel Story for the last um, now almost 10 years is that 
how rarely people actually conform to the stereotypes that we apply to them. I'm now actually surprised when people do conform to those stereotypes. Interesting. Let's take that example you just gave. Okay, so so you see a guy on a bus. It's the summer. He's wearing a black hat and what we would consider clothes appropriate for the winter. All you see is that. So therefore, as you said, you assume that he's an ultra-Orthodox Jew. He's your age. You assume he has six or seven kids. You assume he didn't serve in the army. You assume he is against the gay pride parade in Jerusalem. Maybe not Tel Aviv, but in Jerusalem. How much of that, among other things, is right or wrong? Because you've been in these people's homes many, many times all over the place. I would say more often than that, people surprise you. In that hypothetical case, what might it surprise you? Like, how would you not be surprised by being surprised? Is he okay with the gay pride parade? Is he, he's, he's certainly keeping Shabbat. Stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason, right? Because they do pertain to the majority of the population. And can you find people who absolutely fit every single stereotype that we just uh, mentioned? Of course. But, you know, each one has their own journey and, uh, and their own. Uh, so I have two dogs and, you know, by and large, uh, the ultra-Orthodox population are not big fans of dogs and, and don't have dogs themselves. But I have many times encountered ultra-Orthodox Jews who saw me with my dogs and came up and said, listen, my, my kids don't have many opportunities to see and pet a dog. Uh, is your dog friendly? And if so, can, can we introduce them to a dog and maybe, you know, make them less afraid? And that's not something that, you know, I think you would really imagine an ultra-Orthodox Jew uh, from, you know, central casting really coming up and saying to you, right? I mean, it's uh, people surprise you and how they got where they are. We did an episode a um, couple of seasons ago about an ultra-Orthodox couple here in Jerusalem that are completely ultra-Orthodox. If you saw them on the street, that would be exactly what you thought of them. And it turns out that the husband lost his faith and uh, lives as a completely secular Jew, and yet they remained within the ultra-Orthodox world, uh, socially and you know, geographically, and they make it work. So, you know, what happens behind people's doors and, and inside apartment buildings is always, I think, a source of surprise. And what's nice about podcasts is that it allows you this opportunity, this unique opportunity, not to exercise your uh, visual judgment immediately, because you just listen to people and you just hear their voices. And of course, people have accents and use certain idioms and so on and so forth. But what we hear again and again is that by stripping the visual element and just hearing a voice, it allows you to actually listen to what people are saying and not have it tainted by your stereotypes. And that allows you to practice what is relatively rare in, in this world, which is uh, your muscle of empathy, of trying to actually put yourself in someone else's shoes and see what life looks like through their eyes. And what a great experience, just always being open to being surprised by people when you get to know who they really are. Absolutely. Just makes life interesting and so rich. And so, Mishy, thank you for such a fascinating conversation on so many levels uh, emanating from this awesome passage of Noah's Ark. Thank you. It was a real pleasure, Mark, and I love your podcast. I'm a big fan. Thank you. I'm so honored to hear that. Thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsala and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.